Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. I want to see science serve a useful purpose to improve the standard of living for all people. Why is anyone fighting food advance? A very small percentage of the world's population is fortunate enough to have the luxury of turning down food. We've arranged a society based on science and technology. There was nobody who understands anything about science and technology. You can't build a peaceful world on empty stomachs and human misery. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly biotechnology podcast that's not just about biotechnology. Providing information to help you change hearts and minds. Moving innovations to application with communication. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on the contemporary issues in biotechnology really with an emphasis on how it can help people and help a planet. My name is Kevin Fulbin. Today we have a, a guest I've been hoping to have on for a very long time. Uh, Dr. Susan McCooch studies uh, rice and rice domestication and rice breeding, and she joins us today from Cornell University. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Let's start out with some background. Uh, what is this thing called rice, and really, why is it so important? Well, starting at the simplest answer to that question, I would say rice is an aquatic grass. It's tropical in origin and it produces edible seeds. And the reason we think it's important is because it is uh, a staple crop. It feeds about 3 billion people um, as a staple crop. And most of those people live in Asia. But it is also one of the cereals that is consumed almost entirely by humans, as opposed to uh, something like corn, where we feed a large proportion, more than 50% to animals, and uh, wheat, where at least 20% is diverted to other uses. I didn't think about that before, but how much of um, the world's calorie intake to humans really begins with rice? About 20% of calories and 15% of protein um, consumed by people on a global basis comes from rice. But when you look at the places where rice is consumed as a staple and don't dilute it over the globe as a whole, uh, rice can account for up to 70% of calories and 60% of protein in many Asian countries particularly in the low-income countries. I guess that's what's really important to remember because a lot of the rice that's consumed in these areas isn't necessarily what we think of as, you know, Uncle Ben's rice. What are the different kinds of rice that we find out throughout the world? And are there easy ways to separate it into broad classes that maybe represent what different people throughout the world eat? It's an interesting question. There are many different types of rices. In fact, uh, there are many hundreds of thousands of varieties of rices. Uh, not all of them are grown at any, in any one year or certainly in any one place. But 
they differ in that they can be clustered into broad groups. Um, people in the rice community always refer to indica and japonica. The indica uh, being typically associated with long, thin grain, and the japonica, the kind of rice that people eat in more temperate countries, and we think of that as sushi rice or uh, rice that is uh, shorter and rounder grain. But they're actually um, a slightly, slightly more sophisticated. I would say that there are at least five major groups. The indica group, the Aush group, which is grown in the river basins around the Bangladesh River, uh, the Bangladeshi uh, Delta. And then there is tropical japonica, which is what is grown throughout most of uh, North and South America and Africa, as well as um, parts of Europe. It originates in the Indonesian archipelago and is grown throughout Southeast Asia. There's the temperate japonica, which is, you can tell by the name, right? It's the farthest uh, northern and most southerly kind of rice. That's the very short grain that we think of uh, when we eat sushi rice or um, yeah, the, the very short round grain. Then there's um, the aromatic or basmati rice, which is a very highly prized form of rice, often thought of as a very, very long, very thin, and highly aromatic grain. Uh, so those are the five major groups, the tropical japonica, temperate japonica, aromatic, the Aush, which is grown in Bangladesh, and the indica, which is grown actually on all continents, except Antarctica. Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah the frozen rice patties of Antarctica. <laughs> right. And I should back up. I, let me back up a minute and just say that um, those types of rice are, are genetically the derivatives of uh, different wild populations that gave rise to them. So there were already pre-differentiated wild populations when rice was domesticated in these many different areas in the world. And so the ancestral roots of these differences go way back in time. They go way back before rice domestication. And what it represents is really different ecological adaptations to different types of climates and environments in which these different rices evolved. And really, that really leads to our next good question is where, what is the origin? Where is it thought to have come from before it really radiated? Well, uh, let's start back at what we think of as the origin of the genus, the genus being Ariza. Um, the genus is believed to have originated about 130 million years ago. So it's an ancient form of grass, more closely related to bamboo than it is to any of the other cultivated cereal crops, such as wheat or barley or oat or maize or sorghum. So it's an ancient form of, a, of grass, and it was a wild grass, obviously, 130 million years ago. The great discussion in the rice community is where it was first domesticated. And uh, there's uh, strong evidence that it was actually cultivated as a form of wild, wild, sort of like a gathering, but, but cultivation with a slightly more um, human touch. Uh, long before it was actually domesticated, which implies a genetic change. So cultivation, early rice cultivation, was happening in China, in India, in Bangladesh, and all around Southeast Asia. Um, there's evidence that people were harvesting from the wild and then managing plots of wild grass. But the debate about the genetic changes that we define as changes leading to domestication, um, the 
earliest evidence from both the fossil record as well as genetic evidence suggests that it's along the Yangtze River Valley in China. And the reasons for that, I think, are very interesting. So why do we think that there's reason to believe that the Chinese domesticated it first? So other than the archaeological evidence and the genetic evidence, I just like to say that I think there's a very strong uh, rationale for the fact that there was a, a, a period of global warming about 14 to 16,000 years ago. Sea levels rose. Um, the Indonesian archipelago, which is today a string of islands, was once a land bridge. You could walk all the way from Southeast Asia across that land bridge um, almost to, uh, to Australia, certainly to Papua New Guinea. And when the seas rose about 14 to 16,000 years ago, um, it was an epoch of global warming. And wild rice populations that until that time, during the Ice Age, uh, had only extended up barely to the Yangtze River Valley, the wild rice populations with global warming started to move northward because of the, because of the onset of, of higher temperatures. And as those populations pushed north, n- north or northward, um, people who were living in that area in northern China, north of the Yangtze River Valley, actually, uh, started to become more and more dependent on this very fine grain of wild rice that they, that they really enjoyed. And then there was an ice age which hit. It's called the Younger Dryas, about twelve to 14,000 years ago. And it hit exactly in that region in, uh, along the coast of northern China. And we believe that people had become uh, dependent on and actually really valued those wild rice stands. So they hadn't yet domesticated. Along comes a cold snap, uh, a new mini ice age, and those wild populations begin to go extinct. And we believe that that's what motivated people to build up these paddies or uh, pools of water to try to keep the wild populations where they were, the water being an insulator, uh, to help those wild populations survive during that ice age. And it looks like people really developed what became the rice paddy system as a response to a mini ice age that interrupted a period of global warming. And that ice age passed, and by that time there had been a massive genetic bottleneck on the rice that was able to survive, and people had started to select on actual traits that made it easier for them to cultivate, and uh, that led to the domestication of rice. Wow, that's really cool. So the paddy system really kind of evolved hand-in-hand with the management of wild populations and uh, kind of bringing this into human care. And can you tell us a little bit more about how that works? I mean, I've seen it in pictures, but I don't really understand much about it. Yeah, the paddy system is a very interesting system. Um, Today, let's just step back for one moment and just remind people that about 50% of rice is grown in irrigated systems where you see standing water And that 50% of irrigated land produces 75% of the world's rice. So it's obviously a very productive system. People are often alarmed to see that much water uh, being used to irrigate rice paddies. And I will just say that the reason why the rice paddy system or the rice paddy ecology, if you will, has sustained rice for so many thousands of years is because it is a very, very rich ecology for, uh, for this plant. It, 
It is both a form of weed control because very few plants can actually grow in standing water. This is an anaerobic soil situation where the rice paddy, uh, it's basically, it, it, it's a swamp, swampy kind of environment. Most plants can't grow, but rice can. And the, the other thing is that the rice paddy actually is an efficient nutrient management system because when you allow standing water uh, to drive the oxygen out so that you've got an anaerobic system, that paddy moves to pH 7 and nutrients become very readily available. And it's also uh, the water in the rice paddy is actually uh, home to blue-green algae, which many people probably already know is one of the two organisms on Earth that can transform oxygen from the air into nitrogen. And nitrogen is a very important plant nutrient. So the decaying algae and the, and the active blue-green algae nitrogen fixation, as well as the decay of, uh, of the older rice on an annual basis, and animals who um, spread their feces into the water all provide really rich nutrient environment for growing rice plants. So the paddy system, it turns out, is a long-term sustainable form of agriculture um, practiced for thousands of years and allowing humans to grow rice after rice after rice after rice very, very productively for on the same land. Today we're very up in arms about this because um, global warming is a huge problem and lack of fresh water for, for human consumption and other uses is a problem. Um, the rice paddy produces methane. Methane is a very active greenhouse gas. So today the concept of having standing water on a rice paddy is being called into question by many people. I can especially see that being an issue in Northern California, where I know when you fly into Davis, you see lots of rice paddies out there, lots of rice production. And at the same time, you're talking about water shortages in the state, at least previously. And uh, how does, um, when, you, when you talk about the potential impacts of the environment on, uh, with rice production, uh, really is it much more of a benefit to the environment than a detriment, or at least compared to other types of farming production? It's hard to say today whether it's actually, uh, yeah, we're, we're in the phase of questioning everything that's come before as the environment changes so quickly. What I think we are learning uh, from the rice paddy system is that there are ways to uh, avert the methanogens. After all, methane is a product of uh, microbial activity in the soil. And so if you could uh, adjust that um, the, the microbial population, presumably you could uh, help to deflect or minimize the numbers of methanogens that you find. The other thing that I think we should probably note is that in California in particular, it's kind of uh, become a, uh, an interesting counter, uh, counter argument because in terms of bird flyovers, the rice paddies, when they are producing rice, um, which is only one season a year, of course, are, are aiming at agricultural productivity. But once those paddies are drained and the rice is harvested, there's a lot of rice left in those paddies, and that becomes an, a very important ecosystem for birds, and it is the major stopping point for the large Pacific flyovers uh, of migrating birds who, who, who travel um, from the northern climates to the southern climates during the winter. And they make a stopover, 
Uh, they eat the grain. Uh, they, they, this is a very, very, very important um, point for, for conservation of, of a, a great deal of bird life. So I don't think we should see any single ecosystem as all good or all bad. There's a lot to learn from many of them. Well, this is really an interesting interview. I've learned a lot today already. And are there any other really interesting human stories about rice, rice domestication? Anything that comes to mind about, uh, you know, interesting stories about people that uh, maybe in moving rice from one place to another during domestication? So my, my favorite story about domestication actually dates back to some of the early research we did in my own lab. And it, um, it, it, it's a story worth telling. That is that one of the early domestication traits, or maybe not the earliest, but an, an early um, target of selection, was the transition from colored pericarp, and wild rice typically has a red pericarp, uh, to a white pericarp. So what we call brown rice has a white pericarp, if you will. Uh, the wild rices have a red one. So that transition was um, a slow one in some parts of the world, and much more, much it moved much more quickly in others. So it was a very rapid change uh, in China during those early that early phase of domestication. It was much slower in India and in South Asia along the tropical zones, where uh, cultivated rice mixed with wild rice all the time, and so the wild rice being red, it, it kept reintroducing the red color. But the point is that my lab was actively interested in the genes that conferred domestication traits, and white pericarp was one of those domestication traits. My student at the time, Megan Sweeney, uh, cloned the RC gene, which is the transcription factor that regulates pericarp color in uh, domesticated rice. And one of the things that I think is so profoundly interesting is that white pericarp or red pericarp is not visible when the plant is in the field because the grain is covered by a hull. So the hull color does not tell you anything about the pericarp color. The pericarp is the bran that covers a, a few layers of bran that actually covers the grain. So the only people who would have actually seen that difference would not have been the farmers walking the field who selected on it, but the women who de-hulled the rice for cooking. Rice is typically stored in, on the panicle it was typically stored as hanging panicles in most uh, ancient civilizations or stored in grain bins. But you did not dehull it until you were about to cook it. So it's a fascinating thought that the, one of the early uh, indicators of, of, uh, of domestication was the shift from red to white pericarp rice that would only have been discovered at the time of cooking. It was presumably women who were doing that. And then the question is, why would anyone prefer white rather than red rice? Red is a very beautiful color, after all, and it's, and it's, it's highly nutritious compared to the white bran or the brown rice we, we have today. And I think one reason for that is that the red pericarp is actually pleiotropic for dormancy in the grain. And so what we think is that the women who selected on white, it turns out that the white rice is much quicker to cook. They had to carry less water. It cooked in half the time, and they had a much more digestible form of rice. But what they were also doing was selecting on uh, a trait that then allowed the farmer to plant rice, and it would germinate immediately. It, it, it no longer had the high levels of dormancy that come with, uh, with wild forms of rice. 
So it's sort of an interesting sentinel trait where something that we that we can see so clearly, the real value of it was probably to enable rice to be grown more quickly without the dormancy phase, but it also had an advantage for, for the cooking um, at the time. And uh, we're going back to colored rices now as we want to recover all kinds of nutritional traits that we feel we lost. But it is um, important to note that in the tropics, if you keep rice with the bran layer on as brown rice or as red rice, it goes rancid very quickly unless it's um, refrigerated. So in the tropical areas where rice is a staple food, uh, people learn to mill their rice to get rid of the bran in order to be able to store it longer. And so, uh, for again, for that reason, that it cooks faster, it cooks uh, lighter, it's easier to digest. And uh, the problem with the brown rice is that you can't keep it for long periods of time in the tropics. Wow, this is really great. I'm really excited to hear more about this. But right now, we'll take a short break. We're talking talking with Dr. Susan McCooch from Cornell University. She's a professor in the plant breeding and genetics program there. And uh, we'll be back with her in just a moment on the Talking Biotech program. Hello, Talking Biotech listeners. My name is Nick Syke. And I wanted to take just a quick moment to tell you about No Ideas Media. That's no with a K and a W. It's a media company I've recently started, and its express purpose is to have pragmatic conversations about divisive topics. And I'm willing to bet that since you're here listening to a biotechnology podcast right now, you'd probably agree that a pragmatic conversation about this topic could benefit a lot of people, especially when we're talking about biotechnology in food, the dreaded GMO. This is the first topic I wanted No Ideas Media to focus on, and I wanted to learn it pretty well. So I traveled like all over the place, Hawaii to Uganda. I interviewed a schwack of experts, including this pretty awesome guy you might have heard of named Kevin Folta. I'm making videos with all these interviews, and I'd love you to check them out. You can find them by searching No Ideas Media on YouTube or Facebook. Remember, that's no as in knowledge. Every week you'll find a new video featuring some exciting expert or topic to do with genetically engineered food. And the videos are perfect for people who aren't super familiar with the science. So I would really encourage you to share them, especially with people you know who need to take a look at this scary topic of GMO a little more pragmatically. Also, if you want to get in on a surprisingly constructive conversation about this topic and maybe even contribute to changing a few minds, follow No Ideas Media on Facebook and get in on the conversations there. It also really helps us if you subscribe to the No Ideas Media YouTube channel. Plus, that way you'll always know when there's something new and exciting to watch and share. And I mean, let's face it, we all want to be in the know, right? That's why you're listening to this podcast after all, which I think I'll let you get back to about now. Thanks a lot. And we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast, today talking with Dr. Susan McCooch from Cornell University, and we're talking about rice and rice domestication and what we can learn with modern molecular tools about where it came from and maybe where it's going. Um, Maybe a quick way to start out is, you know, you're at Cornell University and maybe not a place that is renowned for, um, well, northern New York State, uh, renowned for its rice production. So how did you get into rice in the beginning? Well, my, my 
PhD thesis was on rice, and I, I think it was just entirely serendipitous. I wanted to work on a crop that would allow me uh, to travel and work outside of the United States where um, I felt I could, I could contribute to staple food production in the developing world. And so I was very fortunate, actually, when the Rockefeller Foundation asked Steve Tanksley, who was a newly recruited professor here, uh, to develop the first molecular map of rice. And Steve looked very hard for somebody who was actually proficient in molecular biology, but that was back in the uh, early 80s, and uh, there weren't too many people with bi molecular biology skills that wanted to work on what was then an orphan crop. So after a few uh, months of searching for somebody who was highly qualified in that arena, he knew of my interest in this particular crop, and he came to me and he said, if you can learn to grow it in these greenhouses, then I think you'll be able to take on this project of, of, of developing the first molecular map of rice. And that was my lucky break. So that's how I got involved in rice. But we were only developing the molecular map. And so it was uh, when I finished my PhD, I was anxious to get to into the rice growing parts of the world. Because as you say, we certainly don't see much rice growing in the field around here in uh, upstate New York. And... Um, my, my, my great uh, excitement was that I, I took a job at Erie at the International Rice Research Institute in Los Banos in the Philippines um, right after I, I finished my PhD. And uh, that, was, that was really my introduction to the, to the rice growing part of, part of the world. And, and what happens at Erie? And is it still a really prominent institution in terms of rice improvement? So Erie is the place, I guess many of our listeners know, which was, uh, it's attributed with developing the first uh, green revolution rices, the semi-dwarf rices, that uh, once they were planted in, throughout most of uh, South and Southeast Asia, helped to double and triple yields of, of, of rice. Um, it's a very, it's a, it has a long and, and very renowned history. It's still a very prominent institution uh, in the world of rice research today. It is dwarfed, in terms of its financial resources, it is dwarfed by the kind of rice research that is conducted in China or in India or in some of the other countries that are major rice producers. But I think it still features very prominently in, as an institution that helps to move um, new technologies from some of the places where they're first developed, often in advanced labs, as they call them in the developed world, uh, out to national programs that are uh, responsible for rice production in their own countries, so countries throughout uh, South and Southeast Asia. What we've seen is a massive rise of uh, potential scientific potential and power in rice research in China over the last 20 years. Um, and I think that Erie has contributed uh, to some extent to that development, and uh, we have a much stronger rice community today than we did back in even the early 80s when I, or early 90s when I first went to Erie. And just continuing with the Erie theme, um, when I first met you, um, maybe a few years ago, a few decades, well, a decade or so ago, uh, in conjunction with NSF and some genome work that we were doing, you had um, a program that was going on in conjunction with Erie, where a number of students from diverse backgrounds would actually get to take part in understanding rice research. Could you tell us more about that program? Sure. That was a program 
that uh, had been in place in the early days of Erie when scientists who were coming from many, many different uh, parts of the world to work together uh, to enhance rice production, they needed a course that would put them all on the same page with respect to how rice was grown in the tropics. And so they developed something that they called at that time the rice production course. When I went to Erie, um, I took that rice production course and it had us out in the paddy. We learned how to transplant and we learned how to harvest and we everything was done by hand. Hand transplant, hand threshing, hand harvesting, all the things that uh, 90% of the world still does by hand throughout Asia. And uh, I always remembered that course and thought that was a wonderful introduction to rice production in the tropics. So many years later, when I became a professor here at Cornell, I thought to myself, well, maybe Erie would allow us to uh, develop a course that we could uh, basically mimic that old rice production course, but couple it with some of the newer technologies so that students from parts of the world that don't know anything about rice production in the tropics would have an opportunity to get exposure to uh, the realities of that. And so uh, NSF funded me to help develop collaboratively a course with Erie, which we have been running uh, consecutively for 13 or 14 years now. Every single year we take about uh, 30 students, 10 of them from the U.S., the other 20 from other uh, rice growing parts of the world and we walk through the rice production uh, rice production techniques people do hands-on transplanting in teams and they learn how to work together and how to put a rice you know how to level the soil and how to manage the paddy and how to manage the seedlings and when to harvest etc and it's been a really really um influential uh, course in terms of its impact on people's lives. I find that really getting a group of people from many walks of life and from many different countries out in the patties in the heat of the day in the midst of tropical, the tropical heat of Los Banos in the Philippines is a great way to both form um, long-term collaborative research alliances, but also it can transform the way people think about why they do agricultural research and what kind of impact they might have on, on the lives of people for whom um, this kind of labor and this kind of dedicated uh, production is what it takes to put food on the table. No, that's great. I've heard so many good things about it over the years. And if, if is it still an active program that maybe if listeners were interested that they may be able to apply to? Or do they have to be scientists in, uh, in molecular biology labs to be um, considered for such a program? I guess the answer is that the course is being run now. Uh, as of this year, I think the course will be run by Erie's new institution, which they call the Rice Academy. Um, I believe it's open. There are many, many different courses similar to this that are run by Erie in the Philippines, and people can apply to them from many different walks of life. They try to group people together with similar backgrounds and interests in terms of um, just making sure that if people are, let's say they're professional breeders, they may have a slightly different interest than if they're coming as ecologists or uh, as molecular biologists. But the mix is usually uh, good. They run courses, and I think anyone who's interested should go online and look at the Rice Academy under the erie.org uh, 
uh, website and see whether one of the many, many interesting courses that they offer uh, is appealing to them. The course that we ran with NSF support was, was funded to provide that opportunity to the 10 U.S. students um, every year, and those students had to be enrolled in a U.S. university, and they had to be in a graduate program, either at the master's or the Ph.D. level. We did have a few people who would come occasionally. Um, for instance, we had high school science teachers one year. Uh, we've had people who were from, let's say, ag economics and more interested in, in the economics of, of, of rice production. Uh, but all of them have found it to be a wonderful experience and uh, well worth their time. So I'd encourage people who are interested to look online and see if there's um, there's a possibility for them to enroll through the Rice Academy. Oh, very good. And I should mention that Erie is I R R I dot org. Just so, just yeah. yeah don't don't put an E E R I dot Erie. You know, like yeah, yeah you find something very different. Um, I guess so. You mentioned uh, the issue of breeding and plant breeding. Uh, when we look, think about modern molecular breeding and modern breeding across the board, a lot of this starts with genome sequence. And really, I, rice was the second plant genome sequenced, but probably the first real plant that was sequenced. And what did we learn from that effort and, and from about the rice genome and maybe about rice and its relationship to other plants? Boy, we learned so much from that initiative. It's, uh, it's still giving, um, giving back today. Uh, the reason that rice was the first um, of the monocots to be sequenced was in part because it was a very small, highly conserved genome, and so it was something that uh, posed um, comparatively, uh, it was a comparatively easy genome uh, to sequence and assemble at that time. Uh, rice is only uh, uh, maybe two times bigger than uh, Arabidopsis, but it's about it's only one thirty fifth of wheat, for instance. So it's a it's a small genome. It's about um, it's a it's a genome that has a smaller percentage of repetitive sequence, which is the most difficult sequence uh, to to assemble. And uh, so it was a very good scaffold that was then useful in helping. Uh, to sequence through some of the more complicated genomes like maize and wheat or even barley and sorghum, all of which are bigger but have long portions of conserved gene order or syntony that um, enabled us to actually leverage what we had learned from rice to help us in the assemblies of some of the more complicated genomes. And when we think about rice breeding that's going on. You mentioned quite a bit of an investment in rice genetic improvement in uh, India and China and, of course, Erie. But what is really going on in rice breeding? What are the major priorities? And how are they different, whether you're in China or India or Erie or maybe in the U.S.? You know, in some ways they're different and in some ways they're very similar. Um, the major goals of most rice breeding programs throughout the world focus on um, stress tolerance, be it disease and insect resistance, or tolerance to um, the abiotic stresses. They might be micronutrient deficiencies or toxicities. Uh, they might be uh, something like heat or cold tolerance. 
Um, and the other really important target, of course, is uh, quality, grain quality, because as we've said before, unlike many of the other grasses or cereal crops, we don't, uh, you know, we don't pound rice into a flour. We don't uh, distill rice, although we make sake out of rice and some other distilleries, but by and large, rice is eaten as a whole grain and it's eaten by humans. We don't feed it to animals. So the grain quality is a, a very, very high priority trait, but the types of grain quality that uh, a breeder breeds for in Japan are entirely different than what an Indian breeder might breed for or even what a U.S. rice breeder might breed for. So uh, the grain quality is of, of a particular interest. It differentiates the, the types of varieties that are sold in the market. Um, and then I guess you have to say every breeder is still always breeding for yield uh, under whatever environmental conditions they, they are growing their rice. It might be yield in an organic system. It might be yield in an irrigated paddy or it might be yield in a rain-fed uh, field in West Africa, which is full of red soils and iron toxicity and uh, acid soils. So you have to breed for whatever your environment is and yield in whatever those environments serve up to you. Uh, you're gonna be breeding to get some kind of yield gain in that environment. And rice has also been the subject of uh, discussion for efforts in biofortification. So we've heard about golden rice now for almost two decades. And do you think that this is something that ever will catch on, or is it something that maybe traditional breeders will use some sort of natural variation to create a uh, maybe a beta carotene rice, or is that even available? And do you, do you think that that something like that can work? You know, you're right. There's been a lot of uh, publicity around the topic of golden rice. There's been, uh, there's been less publicity around some of the actual achievements that are in farmers' fields today, such as high zinc and iron rice, where um, real genetic gain has been made. But going back to the golden rice, the golden rice has run up against some, some difficulties. Whether or not it'll ever become a commercially available product or whether it will ever be grown um, widely in farmers' fields to address the vitamin A deficiencies that it was designed to do is, a, is an open question. It certainly isn't doing that today. Uh, it's not commercially grown anywhere, as far as I know. And um, that doesn't mean that it won't be a decade from now. But at the moment, it's, it's been a very challenging situation. So if, uh, if I may say so, I think that the, the places where vitamin A... Um, beta, high beta carotene crops have been successful are all non-transgenic. So maize, where we have natural forms of variation for yellow endosperm, high beta carotene and endosperm, uh, sweet potato, cassava, where there is natural forms of that kind of variation. Those products, the breeders have been able to move them through the system and those products are actually growing in farmers' fields and helping to alleviate my, uh, the vitamin A deficiencies. In the case of rice, I don't think we're going to find natural um, variants that give us beta carotene in the endosperm. And therefore, the rice eating public may just have to find their beta carotene um, in other ways. One drop of fish oil, uh, other leafy greens, uh, availability of orange fruits and vegetables would do the job just as well. 
So there is no need to think that um, putting vitamin A into rice is the only solution going forward. Um, it was a solution that people have worked very hard to try to bring forward, and I know that they'll continue to work hard at it. But whether the public will accept it, the rice-eating public will accept it, and whether or not it'll um, really make the cut is still an open question. I think you differentiate well that the rice doesn't have a non-biotech solution, at least at this point. And so how do you feel about that versus in other crops where you have a choice where rice you really don't? Yeah, the fact that we don't have natural variation for um, the high beta-carotene endosperm in rice means that if that became an absolute requirement um, for a breeder, then the biotech solution would presumably be the only way to go. Um, it doesn't have to be the traditional transgenic solution. There are many new forms of genome editing and other forms of um, biotech, uh, let's say, bringing the knowledge that we have from the natural forms of high beta-carotene endosperm in corn, for instance. We can bring what we've learned from corn over to rice. In, in very interesting ways. Uh, the question's a, a, a very profound one as to whether the public will choose to go down that road or not. And all I know is that it seems that given the high cost of regulatory associated with traditional biotech, where you actually have genetic engineering, where you put one gene from one species into a different species and, uh, and move forward with a new trait, that technology may not, we may not need that because we have new forms of genome editing that are much less invasive. And I think the public may find that many, many new opportunities are going to evolve and are going to emerge to help us with the kinds of nutritional um, and healthy foods and healthy diets that we so much need if we're going to address issues about food security in the developing world. No, it's an excellent point. The big deal is if we choose to, uh, as a uh, public, allow policy to uh, accept the new forms of gene editing, uh, it's really an interesting gray area from the, sci from the perspective of a scientist, but also as a science communicator who interacts with the public, just how much they still are suspicious of, an, of this new technology that, to us, seems to be a logical extension of traditional breeding. And uh, do you think that the public may eventually accept this idea? You know, I think we have to look back at history, and it generally turns out that once people realize over time that uh, something that they thought was either frightening or um, was going to harm their health does not need to scare them and is actually beneficial in many cases for their health, uh, they seem to be able to accept it. I find it interesting that, in fact, most of our new uh, most of our new pharmaceuticals that come along to help us address serious questions about uh, disease, including new AIDS uh, medicines, uh, even aspirin today, is generated using uh, standard genetic engineering. And nobody gives it a thought because it's done in a vat and because they take it for, I suppose, a limited period of time. Uh, but they view it as something that uh, enhances health. And I think that it's important for us to all realize that 
there may very well be other forms of biotech, like the ones we use in our ph pharmaceuticals in the West, um, that can really promote health among people whose access to certain micronutrients um, is, is not yet uh, fully available in the diets that they, that they have right now. My hope would be that down the road, everyone had an opportunity to eat a diverse array of fruits and vegetables along with the staple foods, and that we wouldn't need to have this topic about uh, putting beta carotene into uh, rice anymore, that rice eating people would have the option uh, to eat uh, a, a blended diet that consisted of uh, the fish oil that brought them the, 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 the vitamin A that they need, and then we would be on a better road. But for now, I think sometimes it's like any other form of medicine. Nutritious food is what you need in order to stay healthy. And we've got to be able to find ways to deliver that nutritious food however we can. No, very well said. Well, thank you very much for your time on this today. It was really fascinating for me because I honestly don't know much about rice. And I, I probably have quadrupled my knowledge on the topic today. If people wanted to learn more about your program, um, where would they find that online? I guess I'd direct them to the website called ricediversity.org. Just one word, no caps, ricediversity.org. Um, that outlines a lot of the, the work we've been doing. And we are just updating our websites here at Cornell um, in the plant breeding and genetics department. So uh, there will be an update on that soon as well. Okay, that's really helpful. Well, thank you so much for your time today and really look forward to hearing more about what comes to your program. Thank you very much for joining us on Talking Biotech. Thanks so much to you. I enjoyed it. And thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. Write us a review on iTunes or tell a friend about the podcast and the things you found interesting. Uh, once again, thank you for joining us in this week. And thank you to Dr. Makuch at Cornell University. And thank you for listening to Talking Biotech Podcast. Our numbers are fantastic. We're growing all the time. And it's all because you tell friends and share the information with other people. And bring the attention to the fact that we have uh, outstanding stories about food and farming and the new technologies that help us do it better. I'm Kevin Fulta. Thank you for listening. And we'll talk to you again next week. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review of this podcast on iTunes and recommend it to a friend. More downloads help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech. Sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app. C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.